Okay, let's, let's begin. I'll uh, pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather again to uh, look at your word, to look back at our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Uh, we want to learn from them. Um, they can't change, but we can, and so we want to change. So as we look at their lives and the things that they said and did, we pray that uh, we would follow in their example and change and be made new. I pray that you would help us to lose uh, our chronological snobbery that we sometimes have, where we think uh, we have all the answers in our day and age. We have all the commentaries. We have all the books and podcasts and sermons. And help us remember that there were people closer uh, to your son and his life, death, and resurrection in the early church. They're a lot closer to those events than we were. So help us to be humble as we look at them and discuss them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we continue our study of the Apostolic Fathers. The Apostolic Fathers are dated roughly between AD 90 and 174 AD. And again, with all these dates, it's always you know, within a year or two on these. Recall from several weeks ago that the apostolic fathers were the ones who took over from the 12 disciples. They were the ones who followed on the heels of the 12 apostles. They were handpicked by them and appointed and ordained by them to be the leaders of the church going forward from the end of the first century into the second century. We looked last time and the main writings of the apostolic fathers, we looked and talked last time about First Clement, written in about 96, 98 AD. Tonight we're going to talk about the letters of Ignatius. We'll talk about the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Martyrdom of Polycarp next week. We'll also talk about a couple others. There's another one which is called the Didache that we're going to look and spend a little bit more time uh, looking at it next week. It comes from the Greek word which means teaching and the Didache is this how-to manual on how to do the church. Who do you baptize? And there's kind of an end part about eschatology at the end. So we'll look at the rest of these next week. But these are the main ones that I've listed. Those five are the ones that, that were written to churches or to individuals. The Didache was this manual that was passed around on how to do church. That's for next week. So last time we looked at First Clement. And recall from last time that as heresies began and false teaching began to spread in the early church, the question became, how do I know in the midst of all of these heresies, in the midst of all of the false teaching that is spreading, how do I know what the truth is? Who can be trusted with the apostolic message? And so at the end of the first and second centuries, the measure of truth was the bishop. The men who were appointed by the 12 disciples who were appointed by Jesus. So the apostles ordained these men as the ones who would, could be trusted with the truth. And so there was this line of trustworthiness. If you remember from last time, you have uh, Jesus who takes the 12 and then the 12 appoint the bishops. And then the bishops in each city are over uh, the local churches and the pastors and elders in those churches. So there's this line of trustworthiness with the bishop, the bishop, and that was the role of the bishop. 
Um, the bishop was the guardian of apostolic truth. They were the ones who could be trusted. Recall from last time, too, that persecution has always plagued the church. We saw this last time with Nero in the middle of the first century. We saw this with Domitian at the end of the first century. And so throughout church history, persecution will kind of come and go in waves. But as the church enters into the second century, persecution begins to heat up a little bit more. In A.D. 111, uh, Pliny the Younger... This is A.D. 111. Pliny the Younger was appointed governor of Bithynia on the northern shore of what is now Turkey. Pliny was a true Roman. Pliny had this deep respect for Roman law, Roman traditions, Roman cultures. Pliny was kind of like many Texans that you might meet today. Texans love the Lone Star State. Texans love Texas. And Pliny loved Rome. This is what he talked about. But as he came to power in Bithynia, he encountered an unexpected problem. There were many people in this so-called new religion called Christianity. In fact, the gospel began to spread and sinners were coming to Jesus that after a while, many of the temples sat empty and those who sold idols in the marketplace had to declare bankruptcy. And so people were upset about this. So they sent Pliny a list of all the Christians and churches and he would arrest them. And then Pliny said, I will release you if you will do three things. Simply pray to another God, burn incense before the image of the emperor, and curse Christ. Something that he heard Christians would never do. And if they did these three things, then Pliny says, I'll drop all charges and you can walk. And those who refused to deny Jesus were then given three opportunities to recant. And if they didn't, they would be executed. And it wasn't necessarily that Pliny opposed Christianity. It was that he was opposed to how obstinate these Christians were who refused to obey him and refused to submit to his beloved Roman laws. But Pliny also considered himself a just man, and so he felt obligated to find out what crimes these Christians had actually committed, those who had been arrested. And all the information that he could gather about Christians of the day was this. Number one, they gathered before dawn to sing songs to Jesus. Number two, they joined in an oath to not steal, not commit adultery, to be a, a godly person, what we would call sanctification and holiness, normal discipleship. And third, they gathered for a special meal when they gathered. And so the question then became, should Christians be punished for these crimes? Or should the very name Christian be considered a crime? And not knowing what to do with all this, Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan. And Pliny kept all of this documentation that goes back between him and his boss Trajan. So he writes Trajan to get some advice. Trajan was... This was Trajan reigned from 1898 to 117. So Pliny and Trajan began emailing back and forth, if you will, and, and Pliny kept the emails. And Trajan's advice to Pliny was very simple. Don't waste your time seeking these Christians out and trying to arrest them. But if they get arrested for some reason, whatever it is, and they refuse to recant their beliefs, then they should be punished. 
And those who were willing to worship other gods could be pardoned. So this is kind of the political climate as we begin to look at Ignatius, one of the apostolic fathers. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. Ignatius was uh, born around 30s something uh, A.D. And he goes to 110 uh, A.D. Uh, is that right? Yeah, 110 AD. So he's about, he's in his late 70s when he died. So Ignatius, as the Bishop of Antioch, was arrested by Trajan. And there was this big party that was going on in Rome. They were celebrating this big uh, military victory. And Trajan thought, if we can arrest Ignatius because he's a Christian and what he believes, we will transport him to Rome, put him in the Colosseums, and let the lions eat him up, and that will be great entertainment for our little military celebration. And so that's what they were doing. So he was arrested by Trajan in Antioch for being a leader of this illegal religion called Christianity. And as Ignatius is being carted off to Rome... He expects to be thrown into the Colosseum to the lions to be eaten alive and to die as a martyr. And that was his wish. Now, in Ignatius' understanding, he's just following Jesus. He's just taking Jesus at his word when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Now, we don't have much information on Ignatius when he was arrested and what happened when he died. But what we have is the story of what occurs as he's being transported from Antioch all the way to Rome. And on his way to Rome, Ignatius writes seven letters to churches and to his friend Polycarp along the way. So on the journey to Rome, Ignatius is under heavy guard by soldiers But Christians would come and see him along the way and they would encourage him and pray with him as he made his way all the way across Asia Minor down to the city of Rome. So Christians could visit him and not be arrested because the policy was if you're arrested and you're a Christian and then you won't recant, then we will kill you. So that's why Christians could come and go and visit Ignatius. So this is going to be a very crude map of Asia Minor and Rome at this time, but... You'll know, you'll you'll know where Rome is when you see the like the boot, right? Right. So here's Rome. Antioch is over here. Remember, Antioch is where they were first called what? Christians. Here's Rome. So as Ignatius is making his way and stopping in different cities, he's writing letters. To these churches along the way. And that's what we have in what is called the letters of Ignatius, one of the apostolic fathers. So Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, the same church that the apostle Paul pastored. He writes a, a letter to the church in Magnesia, and he writes a letter to, the, to a church in Tralles. And then he writes a letter to the church in Rome. That says poem, doesn't it? I'm going to make that R work. He writes this letter to the church in Rome where he is headed. And as the soldiers are taking these breaks, he has someone come and he's kind of dictating these letters and people are writing them down for him. He writes three more letters, one to the church in Philadelphia, one to the church in Smyrna, and one to his friend, or it's really his friend, Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. 
And Polycarp is one of his close friends. And so Ignatius writes the last three letters while they are stopped in Troas. And there are four basic reasons why Ignatius writes these seven letters. Number one, he wants to give thanks. He wants to thank all of these churches for how they have ministered to him along on his journey to Rome. These Christians had heard about Ignatius, word traveled, people started sending emails and messaging each other on Facebook. So people would come out, Christians would come out along the way. And as the soldiers were taking a break, they would minister to Ignatius, provide him with nourishment, food, water, granola bars, etc. As he is on his way to be martyred and to be killed for being a Christian. So the first reason he writes is he writes and he thanks all of these Christians for how they have encouraged him. Secondly, I guess I should put this here. He's writing to give thanks. Secondly, he's writing to address the heresy of docetism. We looked at this last time. It's a Christological heresy, a major theological heresy that began spreading throughout the churches in Asia Minor. It comes from the Greek word dokeo which means to seem or appear to be. And so the, the idea behind this heresy, the heresy of docetism, thought that, taught that Jesus was divine. He was God's son, but he only seemed or appeared to be human. He wasn't really a human being like us. He just seemed that way. So if you wanted to give Jesus a hug, what would happen? You just kind of go right through, right? He just, he just seemed to be there. If you want to give Jesus a high five, you'd miss. Here's what Ignatius said about Jesus to counteract the false teaching of the docetists. And it's one of the earliest and most robust pictures we have of the humanity of Jesus. Ignatius said this, Be deaf, therefore, when anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ who was of the family of David and of Mary, who was truly born, both ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died in the sight of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, who also was truly raised from the dead when his father raised him up, as in the same manner his father shall raise up in Christ Jesus us who believe in him without whom we have no true life. Notice that word. Did you catch that word in there that he repeats over and over again? That word, truly. He really was a human being. Now, for the docetists of the time, Jesus was just spiritual. There's nothing physical about him. Church historian Stephen Nichols says that even in contemporary theology, we tend to view Jesus as sort of floating six inches off the ground as he walked upon the earth. The docetists, and some people today, view Jesus as if he were like those force ghosts on the end of Star Wars. You know, the end of Star Wars Return of the Jedi, you see Obi-Wan is kind of glowing there. That's kind of how the docetists views them. Jesus is just kind of, he's like one of these force ghosts on Star Wars. He's not quite there. He's not human. He's not tangible. So, but is it that big of a deal? I mean, Ignatius, you're headed to Rome. 
to die and be eaten by lions. Why are you obsessed over this false teaching? Is it that big of a deal? Does it matter that Jesus was completely human like us? What do we lose if Jesus just appeared to be human? What do we lose? Him coming alongside us and knowing exactly how we are. Yeah. When we pray, he's not thinking, I don't really know what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. That's how he became our mediator. He had to be mediator of God and man. Mediator had to be a perfect high priest. Right? We lose everything, don't we? If Jesus is not a human being like us, we lose everything. Let's, let's read from the preacher of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 17, verse 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help us. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So everything that uh, Barb and Don both said, we, he, he's, a, he's a high priest, he's our high priest, he has to know. And he's made like us in every respect. In order to make propitiation, in order to turn aside God's wrath from our sins, he had to be a human being. So we cannot be forgiven of our sins if Jesus was not a human being, right? And the Old Testament sacrifices obviously were pointing toward this, toward the Messiah and the Lamb of God who would come. So what else does Scripture affirm about Jesus' humanity? Any passages? What do you know about Jesus from the Bible where you could say, he did that or that happened and that proves he's a human being. He wept. He wept. He felt pain. He felt pain. He ate fish. He ate fish. Post-resurrection. <laughs> he was crucified on the cross, which if he only appeared to be, he yeah. could have Yeah. And yeah. Blood, 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 and water. blood and water came out. He got tired. He yawned like I did before the class. <laughs> he got tired. He showed compassion. What did he say on the, the cross? I thirst. I'm thirsty. Uh, he grew in wisdom, Luke tells us in chapter 2. And so, stature. And stature, yeah. He, he was a baby. He didn't come out a 33-year-old man, did he? He grew in wisdom and stature. So... Ignatius is concerned about making sure Christians have the correct understanding and this robust understanding of the full humanity of Jesus. You guys have heard me say it in sermons, but Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Now, if you were listening and you heard me say this many times, that's not enough to say. In the same sentence and in the same breath, we must also say that those two natures, God and man, have been united together in one person. 
This is something we'll see in the 5th century at the 4th Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon. They're going to hammer home that these two natures, his deity as God and his humanity as a, as a man, have been united together in the person of Jesus. And now they cannot be separated. And so this is, we see early, what happens in the 5th century, we start to see some of that uh, bleeding out through Ignatius' writings. So Ignatius knew that docetism was spreading throughout churches. Christian bookstores were stocking their shelves with books by these authors. Songs were coming into the church that you would sing and say, that kind of sounds like a docetist wrote that. And so Ignatius is concerned. Uh, You remember from several weeks ago, I said that maybe some songs went something like this back then. Jesus only appeared, like a worship song that you would sing in church. Jesus only appeared to be here. He had no body. He shed no tears. He was like a ghost on Scooby-Doo. You could not hug him. You'd go right through. And so Ignatius, knowing that this teaching is spreading, knowing that he would die soon, cared so much for these churches that he wrote to these churches to remind them of the full humanity of Jesus. Without this doctrine, we have no hope. The third thing that Ignatius addressed in his letter was those pesky, hard-to-get-rid-of Judaizers. Does anybody remember what the Judaizers were like? They just would not go away. Ignatius writes to tell these churches, be careful of Judaizers who are creeping into the church. And he rebukes them and says... Freedom is found in trusting in Jesus and what he has done and not what we do. Remember the Judaizers were a group of Jewish people who said that in order for a Gentile to be saved, if they were a male, they had to be circumcised and they had to adhere to the Mosaic law. That's how you're saved. So the Judaizers were considered heretics because they taught things that were not in step with the truth of the gospel, such as Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That Jews and Gentiles are on equal ground in Christ. And that the law, the Mosaic law, was meant to drive us to Christ, not that we could do it in order to earn his favor. And so Ignatius is writing to these churches to warn them about the pesky Judaizers that just won't go away. And he writes to the Ephesian church And I love how he begins them. He greets them. He says, I greet you. He says, abundant greeting in Jesus Christ and in blameless joy. I love that. He's saying, you guys remain in a state of blameless joy because of your faith in Jesus. You don't have to do what the Judaizers are telling you to do. If you have faith in Christ and you are trusting in Him and Him alone, you remain in a state of blameless joy. I love Ignatius for that little phrase. You'll probably hear it in a sermon sometime. The fourth issue that Ignatius addressed, which is occurs to all of the apostolic fathers in their writings, is Church unity. Just like Clement that we looked at last time, he is urging Christians towards the Christian virtue of unity in community. And Ignatius does it by appealing to them and telling them to unite around the bishop. 
The Christian virtues of unity as a church and submission to the bishop was paramount of paramount importance for the apostolic fathers. And so to the Ephesian church, this is what Ignatius said. I, I love the imagery here about unity, church unity. Keep in mind, he knows he's going to be eaten alive by lions. And what's on his heart is, I want the church to be unified. Here's what he said. It is therefore seemly in every way to glorify Jesus Christ, who has glorified you, that you may be joined together in one subjection, subject to the bishop and to the presbytery, and may in all things be sanctified. Therefore, it is fitting that you should live in harmony with the will of the bishop, as indeed you do. For your justly famous presbytery, worthy of God, is attuned to the bishop as the strings to a harp. Therefore, by your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is being sung. He's saying when you guys come together in unity, it's the song of Jesus Christ. Continuing, he says, Now do each of you join in this choir, that being harmoniously in, in concord, you may receive the key of God in unison and sing with one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father, that he may both hear you and may recognize through your good works that you are members of his Son. It is therefore profitable for you to be in blameless unity in order that you may always commune with God. In fact, Ignatius will appeal to the two natures of Christ, that he is 100% God, 100% man, and those two natures are united together. Ignatius will appeal to the unity of the two natures of Jesus and say, that's why we should be unified. Because the two natures of Christ are unified in one person and we. So he takes this big theological doctrine, the full humanity and deity of Jesus Christ, and says, because those two natures are united in Jesus, therefore it makes sense that we as Christians should be united together in all of our differences. So the letters of Ignatius are littered with admonitions to submit to the bishop and submit to the pastors in the local church. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Over and over again, it says, submit to the leadership in a church. Submit to the leadership in your church. It reminds me of a story I read about church unity uh, in a church in the 1830s. At, at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, in the 1830s, Judge William Tracy Gould led a movement to buy a new organ for the church. So already you're thinking, oh, this guy, where is this going to go? You're starting to talk about musical style and preferences. So it was a big change because back then most Presbyterians still sang without instruments on Sunday morning. So he's talking about buying an organ and bringing it into the church for the first time and changing what they know as worship. So there was obvious opposition because there's always opposition to change inside of a church, right? But the majority of the church wanted to get this new organ, and Judge Gold was appointed to raise money for the new organ. And one day, he ran into a man by the name of Robert Campbell on the street. Campbell had been opposed to the organ. But Campbell asked the judge, he says, why didn't you call on me for a donation? He says, because, Mr. Campbell, I knew that you did not wish to have the organ. And Mr. Campbell said, that makes no difference. When the majority of the members of the church have decided the matter, it is my duty to put aside personal feeling and to assist as well as I may. 
Imagine what churches would look like if people said, when the majority of the church members have decided on a matter, it's my duty to put aside my personal feeling and to assist in any way that I can. Might change the church environment, right? Church unity. It's what the apostolic fathers wanted to see in the churches in the second century. That's the heart of the writings of Ignatius. He knew that when the churches supported and rallied around the bishops, he knew then you are supporting and rallying around apostolic doctrine. Remember, the bishop was the guardian of truth. They're in this line of trustworthiness. And if you submit to the bishop, then you are submitting to apostolic doctrine in a culture where false teaching was rampant. Okay. Any questions or comments at this time? Questions I may have to say I don't know to. Really quickly, you said that the, the Christians were not arrested unless they did something wrong uh, initially. So he was just arrested to be made an example of that. Probably. We don't have a lot, of, we don't have a lot on his actual arrest. Mm-hmm. My guess was that some things were happening. You know, it, it, it's kind of like today. Not, not, every baker is arre- not every Christian baker is arrested, right? Uh, so you have these incidents that kind of pop up with these hot cultural issues. And I think that's what happened. And, and for whatever reason, he was singled out by Trajan and said, we're going to arrest him. And he's going to make this uh, military celebration really great when we get to see him eaten by lions. So there's not a lot about him on what actually happened. And not a lot on his death either. We just get these letters in between. Uh, in the letter to the Trallians, um, he wrote about the Ebionites. Yes. Um, I know they denied the Son of God, but how are they different from the Docetists? They're very similar. And sometimes, if I remember from my reading, sometimes the, the, they're used interchangeably. Uh-huh. So I could be wrong. So I don't know. Yeah. I did read all of his letters last week. It, it took a while, and they're very encouraging, but I mean, you keep going on and seeing Roman numeral 60, and you're like, whoa, yeah, this, this guy is, you know, but he cared about the church, and so he wrote, okay? Okay, Ignatius is on his way to die, to be thrown to the lions, and so for Ignatius, martyrdom was discipleship. When you read his account of his desire to be fed to the lions, you read him, and he's like, He's, he's writing to the church in Rome and he says, don't you, basically saying, don't you guys dare come and try to get me out. Don't try to sneak in the prison in the middle of the night and let me out. Don't hinder me from what I am called to do. I am called to give my life as a martyr. And so you might be tempted when you read how focused he is and determined about making sure that he is a lion's dinner. You might think that he was some neurotic dysfunctional masochist, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Because in the second century, Christians took Jesus' words in Mark 8 very seriously. If you have your Bible, somebody read Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. They took what Jesus said in Mark 8 very seriously. Once somebody has it, you can just start reading. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So in the early church in the second century, discipleship, like it means today, means you follow Jesus, right? So being his disciple might entail suffering for his name, and ultimately it might mean that you die as a martyr. Uh, one of my church history professors, Jeff Bingham, says, For the second century believer, being his disciple may very well involve stepping into the blood-soaked footprints left by Jesus under the cross. And so this is, you, as you understand their understanding of discipleship, you realize Ignatius is not off his rocker here because he wants to go be eaten by lions. He thinks this is just what Christians do. We don't deny our faith, and if it means that we're fed to the lions, then so be it. But he's writing to the Romans saying, don't you dare hinder me. This is what I am called to do. So here's what he said to the churches in Rome where he would eventually die. We don't have an account of his death, but we do have his words. And he said this. He said, I am writing to all the churches, and I give injunctions to all men that I am dying willingly for God's sake, if you do not hinder it. I beseech you, be not an unseasonable kindness to me, meaning don't stop me from dying. Suffer me to be eaten by the beasts through whom I can attain to God. I am God's wheat, and I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found, pure, may be found purebred of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and leave no trace of my body that when I fall asleep, I be not burdensome to any. Then shall I be truly a disciple of Jesus Christ when the world shall not even see my body. Let there come on me fire and cross and struggles with wild beasts, cutting and tearing asunder, rackings of bones, manglings of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, may I but attain to Jesus Christ. And so these words may shock us, but this was the understanding of discipleship in the second century. To follow Jesus meant that you would suffer. As you may recall, I've said numerous times in my sermons, people will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. Being a Christian, people may hate your guts, but you have to love them to death, and you may have to love them to the point of even you dying as a martyr. You and I will be hated for following Jesus, and it might cost you your life, and it might happen in our lifetime. It might happen in this country. So I am grateful for my brother Ignatius. What an example for safe well-to-do disciples in our culture today, right? Ignatius should be more well-known by Christians because his writings are full of Scripture. When he, make, when he wants to make a point, he quotes the Apostle Paul. When he really wants to make a point, he quotes the Apostle Paul and just keeps on quoting him and keeps on quoting him. So, I thank God. Any more questions on Ignatius? 
Okay, moving on now to the martyrdom of Polycarp. We, we don't have a record of really of the arrest or the death of Ignatius, but we do have one of his younger friend, Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and the account of his death is Polycarp is in 155 A.D. Polycarp was the bishop over the city of Smyrna. His death is recorded in the Apostolic Fathers, the writing called, appropriately, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. What are we going to call this book? What's it about, The Martyrdom of Polycarp? Let's call it The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's one of the writings of the Apostolic Fathers uh, around 155 AD. It's written by the church in Smyrna to the church in Philomelium and to other churches around the area. It records the death of Polycarp. Uh, They're writing to honor him. He was their beloved bishop. He was noble. They're writing to tell tell these other Christians in these churches that he was patient in endurance. He was faithful to the end, to his master, Jesus Christ. And so Trajan's policy, if you remember, that he outlined for Pliny the Younger was still in effect. Christians uh, were being arrested for different things, sometimes just singled out and arrested. Sometimes maybe they did something and they're arrested. And so persecution was happening during this time. There was a man in this time, an elderly man by the name of Germanicus, who was put on trial for being a Christian. And he basically said, bring on the beasts. He's this elderly man who said, bring on the beasts. And then during this time as Germanicus is on trial and then martyred, groups, they started actually saying, uh, you know, down with the atheists. That's, what, that's how they viewed Christians. They thought they were atheists, that they didn't believe in these Roman gods. And so they then said, in the midst of this that's happening to Germanicus, they say, bring us Polycarp. He's the Bishop of Smyrna. So the crowd is chanting, we want Polycarp. And so they arrest Polycarp. He's, he's passive in this. First he hides for a few days because his friends tell him, don't be dumb. But he hides and then he realizes, no, this is my calling. I'm suffering as a disciple. I need to. So he's passive and compliant in his arrest. Even offers refreshments to those who are arresting him. He spent the last two hours of his life praying for the local churches, praying for all of his friends, and praying for the gospel to advance around the world. Polycarp was then brought before the proconsul, who actually tried to persuade him over and over again to renounce his Christianity and have his life spared. And here is how it's told in the martyrdom of Polycarp. Let me read this lengthy section to you. But when the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath meaning deny Jesus, and I let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I have wild beasts. They're going to eat you. I will deliver you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp said, Call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us, but it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And he said again to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beast unless you repent or change your mind, Polycarp. But Polycarp said, you threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. 
But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And with these and many other words, he was filled, Polycarp was filled with courage and joy, and his face was full of grace, so that it not only did not fall with trouble at the things said to him, but that the proconsul, on the other hand, was astounded and sent his herald into the midst of the arena to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian. So as everyone's watching in the arena, he's got this glow on his face. I'm following Jesus. Okay? And he, he sends an, uh, this associate to go into the ring, the proconsul does, to let everybody know Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. He's not changing his mind. And it continues. So they did not nail him, but bound him. And he put his hands behind him and was bound as a noble ram out of a great flock for an oblation, a whole burnt offering made ready and acceptable to God. And Polycarp looked up to heaven and said, and this was his prayer, O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed child Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers, and of all creation, and of the whole family of the righteous who live before thee. I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. As thou, the God who lies not in his truth, hast prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason, I also praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee through the everlasting and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, through whom be glory to thee with him in the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. And with that, the lions were released and Polycarp died for his faith. This was discipleship in the second century. Questions or comments on Polycarp? Another name that Christians should know. We should be familiar with his writings. If you just Google uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp, you can read it. If you Google the, the letters, the seven letters of Ignatius, you can read what he's writing to. Uh, there are other accounts of martyrdom from the second century on into the fourth century. There are uh, several women that are included. I know sometimes you look at church history and all you hear are the, the names of these men, but there are several women who were martyrs. There's a story of a young mother named Perpetua who was arrested along with five of her friends, and they were martyred in 203 AD. Even though Perpetua had an infant son, even though her pagan father tried desperately to get her to recount her faith and deny that she was a Christian so that she could live and take care of her infant son, she remained faithful to the end. There's a story of a woman named Felicitas, a widow who had seven sons. She was pressed and said, will you recant? And she said no. And she said this to the authorities at the time. While I live... I shall defeat you. And if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you all the more. And so she was martyred and her sons too. And they were sent into different sections of the city to be killed. So there's stories of martyrdom of many Christians, Persian Christians. One tells the story of a trial and then the execution of a woman named Martha who, fathered, who followed her father Posey in martyrdom. Martha's last words were a prayer where she positioned 
position. She petitioned God to preserve the faith of the believers in her church community and to strengthen them in a true Trinitarian worship and confession. So think about that. You're about to die, and what's her concern? Strengthen the believers in my church family, where I go to church, and strengthen them in a true Trinitarian worship and confession. That they would understand the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that would be evident in their singing and in their preaching and their teaching. Maybe not what we would think about if we're going to be martyred. There's a man named Sanctus who, when tortured, simply answered, I am a Christian. And the more they tortured him, he just kept repeating, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. So not only was martyrdom a part of discipleship, as I just mentioned, Trinitarian worship was also at the heart of it. Imagine what your last prayer would be before you were killed for being a Christian. What would you pray for? Martha prayed for believers in her community to be strengthened in a true Trinitarian worship and confession. I love that. And that's where we'll pick up next week, Trinitarian worship. We will still be looking at the Apostolic Fathers. We'll we'll conclude, Lord willing, the Apostolic Fathers as we look at the Shepherd of Hermas, as we look at the Epistle of Barnabas, maybe a few others if we have time, and then the Didache, which is the teaching. The Didache is a how-to manual. How do you do church Who do you baptize? What do you do when you baptize them? What kind of water do you use? These are all things that are addressed in this manual. Now, as I was thinking about martyrdom as discipleship in the second century, I had read the other day about uh, Boko Haram, the uh, terrorist group that they had captured some schoolgirls a while back, and there was one girl left, and they said, we'll release you if you recant. And she said no. Now, I've heard conflicting reports of whether or not she is alive or whether she has died, has died but she said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to deny Jesus. And so it's still happening in our world today. Uh, in fact, Boko Haram killed 65 people at a funeral today. So this stuff is still happening. Christians are being, I don't know if all the people at the funeral were Christians, but Christians are still being martyred around the world. Do you think we're headed that way? I think it's possible. Uh, I really do. Uh, I think since high school, it seemed like everybody talked about, oh, this is where we're headed. Now, I feel like the way culture is going, very much so. I think we could be. um, You know, Lord willing, I'll be like, if I'm in that position, I'll be like Ignatius or Polycarp or Martha or Sanctus or Germanicus or Perpetua or Felicitas, any of these people, or Leah Shariba, who was the girl in Nigeria who refused to not deny Christ, and maybe she's still alive or not. She's just a 16-year-old girl, I think. That's, these are my heroes, not celebrity pastors. Celebrity pastors have it easy. They write books. They go to conferences. You know, they, on that. Give me Perpetua. Give me Leah Shariba. All right, as we close, somebody read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. We are encouraged by Peter to remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering. As we heard in the sermon this morning, we need to humble ourselves. And Peter tells us, humble yourself and then remember. So if somebody has it, 1 Peter chapter 5. 
verses 6 through 11. Before we get there, anybody have any final questions or comments? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let me pray first. Father, uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution. We pray that you would do what Peter says in this passage, that you would perfect and strengthen and confirm them to the end, Lord. And we pray for ourselves. We pray for the Christian church in America, Father, as uh, culture is changing, Father, certainly persecution is a real possibility uh, for what we believe because uh, we believe your word and what it says and that clashes with this world system. So we pray for Christians around the world to be strengthened. We pray for this young girl in Nigeria, if she has not been killed yet, God, that you would sustain her and give her greater faith. We pray for you to stop this terrorist group, Boko Haram, and, and, and shut it down, God. We pray that they would come to know you. We pray that they would repent of their sins. But Lord, we pray that you would stop it. So strengthen your people around the world and strengthen your church here in America, God, that we would stand for truth. We would have a steel spine, but a soft heart uh, to share the gospel with sinners who are lost. So would you do that uh, for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen.